All right, if you're there in your Bible, that's great. Navigate on your device, Isaiah chapter 33. We're working our way through this wonderful book. The topic this week, the Lord tells his people that they possess in him incredible spiritual treasure. Our title, To What Do I Owe the Treasure? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we want to humble ourselves before you by joining in prayer, uh, acknowledging, Lord, that you must be our teacher, that uh, no man can really teach us, but the Holy Spirit can as he brings this uh, text alive in our hearing and in our hearts. We want to hear what the Spirit says to us individually and to our church and to the churches beyond our walls. And you're going to have to do that, Lord, because uh, we don't have the strength, the ability, uh, we don't have anything, Lord, other than our hearts to give you. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. In the 1960s, protest songs were plentiful. The Plastic Ono Band charted with, all we are saying is, give peace a chance, right? Some of you here are more than 50 years old. The rest, I'm not sure what's going on. Barry McGuire sang The Eve of Destruction. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, Ohio, as in four shot dead in Ohio State at the Kent State protests. People are surprised to learn uh, that The Last Train to Clarksville is a protest song. Mickey Dolenz, the last surviving monkey, explained, it's an anti-war song. It's about a guy going to Clarksville, Tennessee which is an army base, if I'm not mistaken. He's obviously been drafted, and he says to his girlfriend, I don't know if I'm ever coming home. Then there was the 1969 hit, One Tin Soldier. Anybody? All right. Just sit there then. It describes a fictional mountain kingdom who possess a great treasure. The residents of the valley become envious of the treasure and they want it for themselves, suspecting it may be gold or something valuable like that. The kingdom offers to share it with them freely, but the people of the valley proceed to invade the kingdom, kill everyone in order to seize the treasure. Now they stood beside the treasure on the mountain, dark and red, turned the stone and looked beneath it. Peace on earth was all it said. Go ahead and hate your neighbor. Remember? Just indulge me. Like I told you last week, I'm a frustrated teen idol. But anyway, we see something like this in verse 6, where we read, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. The Assyrian army besieged God's people. They hoped to enrich themselves with temple treasures, slaves, other spoils of war. Surveying these verses, we see that the Lord's concept of treasure is very different from the world's. He treasures things like salvation, justice, righteousness, wisdom, knowledge, and forgiveness. In the end, God himself is our treasure. The Lord's treasure isn't buried or hidden. It isn't guarded by booby traps. There are no riddles to solve. Only one thing, one simple thing, one obvious thing is necessary, and that is the fear of the Lord. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one. Fear of the Lord is nothing for you to be afraid of. And number two, fearfulness of the Lord is something for you to be appreciative of. Let's take a look at the fear of the Lord and not being afraid. What is the fear of the Lord? Definitions and descriptions abound. Uh, there is no one 
single definition of the fear of the Lord. It's not like you can open up a, a dictionary and find, uh, you know, the one true meaning of a word. Fear of the Lord can mean many different things. I've settled on something A.W. Tozer wrote philosophically, that is. He said, the greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us to not be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of our faith. And so I think I'm in good company in saying that the fear of the Lord is not something to be afraid of, and we'll try and develop this as we work through the text. And so let's look at verse 1. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. The treacherous plunderer was the nation of Assyria. God used them to discipline his people. Internal treachery and the rise of Babylon as the next world power would end their domination in that region. Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. Each morning brought renewed peril to the besieged Jews. I'm glad that God's mercies in my life are new every morning. You realize uh, if you slept last night that the Lord remained awake, watching over you, not slumbering or sleeping planning out your day, thinking about what kind of a day he would make for you and me. I need to depend upon his arm, upon his strength, since I really have none of my own. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. That is the prayer of the Jews inside the walls of Jerusalem. The rest of that verse is a prayer of Isaiah's for the people. And so it's always precious to get some insight into the authors, the human authors of these books times they interject themselves in. And Isaiah was so moved by what he was reading that he wanted to let us know that he also was praying for his people and for himself. The Jews had been brought low and were finally looking up to the Lord for help. Verse three, at the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered. The Lord here is depicted as coming and scattering the nations, but notice it's plural. Not Assyria necessarily, but all the nations. We're thus looking to the far future, to the time of Jacob's trouble, which we commonly call the Great Tribulation. Verse 4, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of a caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run upon them. One morning, 185,000 Assyrians who were surrounding Jerusalem would not wake up. In the night, the angel of the Lord was going to kill them. Their defeat and despoiling would be like when caterpillars or locusts come to the crops. You must have seen something like that depicted or an actual flock or a swarm of locusts in some National Geographic kind of thing. And we're talking locusts, you know, like, well, maybe not that big, but, uh, you know, the, and it's terrifying. Uh, you know, I've got, I'm having trouble with ants in the backyard. And, you know, luckily they're not biting ants, you know, but... I can't go out there, but I'm just swarmed with ants. You know, I'm doing this all the time, and then gnats are coming on me. It's like a war zone in my backyard. Maybe it's just, I think it's my olive oil skin. But anyway, uh, verse 5, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He reigns. This is the millennial kingdom that follows the great tribulation. 
It lasts millennium, a thousand years. Jesus will rule from Zion, from Jerusalem. Wisdom and knowledge, verse 6, will be the stability of that time and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Isaiah frequently gives us glimpses of the thousand-year kingdom. Wisdom, knowledge, and salvation will be enforced to stabilize the earth. There will be a righteous rule of the Lord Jesus Christ implemented by his servants, uh, you know, like us who come back with him at, at his uh, arrival to do this and all, and uh, it'll be a wonderful time uh, when, you know, you, if there still is television and you're watching, you say, why doesn't something happen over there? And it will happen. God, any kind of thing that's happening, God's going to put down quickly, uh, righteously judge what's going on. It will be a great time. Not be utopian, but not perfect. It can't be perfect because there's still imperfect human beings, but it'll be a wonderful time of his rule. Verse 6, um, excuse me, uh, verse, uh, we're going to move into verse 7, but first we need to convert the philosophical into the practical. So we've seen what Tozier and others have said about the fear of the Lord. How should we then live in light of that, in the fear of the Lord? Well, here's how I go about it. You have new life in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are said to be a new creation in Christ. He is in you. You are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. He was gifted to the church age believers on the day of Pentecost, and that's described in the second chapter of the book of Acts. Jesus said, wait for the promise of the Father. And that promise was the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul explained it fully when he said to the church at Colossae, for ages and ages, this message was kept secret from everyone, but now it has been explained to God's people. The mystery is that Christ lives in you, and he is your hope of sharing in God's glory. And so Paul said, hey, this giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, this was unknown in the past, it is a mystery being revealed to you. Christ lives in you. Christians and scholars, there's an ongoing debate. I think Gino touched on it last week about whether the Holy Spirit indwelt the Old Testament believers. Uh, or you know, say, well, no, his ministry always has to be the same. And how could he do this and not this? But Paul the Apostle says, no, I'm going to tell you something. I am revealing to you a mystery no one's ever known before. And it is that in the church age, you will be permanently, personally indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In the past, the Holy Spirit was with people. He came upon people. Uh, sometimes he was in them, but he could also be taken away. He could also leave them. And so what we're talking about is something that's new and fresh and exciting. I am a New Testament church age Christian, and the Holy Spirit indwells me in a permanent way. Sam Storms wrote, God doesn't simply give us his spirit. He gives the spirit into us, not just to us, but as an act of what can only be called intimate impartation, his spirit resides within to encourage, energize, and enable. The spirit isn't just here, he's inside. Now, what does all this have to do with fear? Plenty. I've heard and probably said myself things like, if Jesus were to come right now, would you want to be caught watching this movie or going to this party or partaking in something that would make him ashamed? But that supposes that Jesus is not always with you, right? 
you know, how can I be at a movie that Jesus isn't out with me if the Holy Spirit lives in me? Well, I can't. And so, since he's always with me, by apprehending that he is, by remembering that he is, by realizing whatever word you want to put in there, I will walk with him obediently, joyfully, fearing to in any way offend him, desiring rather to please him. I mean, if, if, everything you know about Jesus Christ, if he were, in, in a sense, physically walking with you, uh, would you, you know, try and fake him out? And just be good when you're around him? No, I mean, you'd, you'd understand. You'd see the nail prints and you'd, you'd see the tenderness and the compassion and you, the love that, that he has for you. As God so loved the world, how uh, he'd draw you by cords of love to salvation and all, and you'd just want a desire to please him. And that's the fear of the Lord because the Lord is with you all the time. Uh, and not just in an omnipresent, you know, mystical way, but in an intimate way in your heart. The Lord is within you. And so that's why the fear of the Lord has to do with the presence of God. It is the apprehension that Jesus is with me at all times. Verse 7, surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He's broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is ashamed and shriveled. Sharon is a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. This passage doesn't sound very millennial. It's not uncommon for God's prophets to make abrupt changes of subject uh, from verse to verse or sometimes within a verse. Here Isaiah comes back from the far future to discuss what had led up to the Assyrians being camped around Jerusalem in the first place because elsewhere we learn that the Jews had sent a peace envoy to the Assyrians in order to make a treaty with them. They had entered into that treaty. The Assyrians never thought that they would keep it. Uh, They were the world power. Judah had no hope against them. Even Judah with Egypt together had no hope against them. Besides, in their collective consciousness somewhere in the past, uh, I think they understood that the God of Israel had raised them up to discipline Israel. Uh, We know that to be true. Israel knew that to be true. And I'm sure the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everyone knew that to be true. Earlier, we see that they had sent this peace envoy, but... Uh, Now those who thought that they had achieved peace were weeping. And so it says in verse 10, I will rise, says the Lord. I will be exalted. I will lift myself up now, now, now. Lots of movies have that tense scene where the hero waits and waits and waits, right? Till just the last second. Braveheart, hold, remember? The army is bearing down on them in their horse. Hold, hold. And at the last possible second, they let their defenses go. Then there's Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1. In the prison, Rocket starts telling them his plan to escape, all the different things they would need. And in the background, as it's filmed, Groot is walking away, and then he starts climbing this tower, and he comes up to this box, and he opens it. And then right as Rocket is saying, we're going to need you know, the quantum battery that's on that tower... Uh, but we have to get that last, otherwise none of this work. He pulls the thing off, and it's chaos. We are like Groot when it comes to God's timing. We want to skip ahead to the end. I, I got the battery down here. Like, we don't need to do all of this preliminary stuff. I, I'm ready. And the Lord says, oi vey. Now I have to start all over. I, it's chaos. You've made chaos of this situation. It's a good thing I'm omnipotent and I can resolve this. 
Let the Lord tell you his plan. Follow his plan. Don't lead in it. He has good works for you to discover, uh, not to, uh, you know, go out and make for yourself. Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. It looked as though they would easily destroy Judah. But at that precise moment, the Lord addressed them. He says, I'm going to rise up against you and be exalted in victory. Because like all of these other big nations, they forgot that the Lord was using them and they went beyond the boundaries that God had set for them. And they started to be arrogant and proud and think it was their own strength and not the Lord's. And, And they tortured and killed and mutilated people in ways that the Lord had never Intended, And so the Lord says, hey, I'm, I'm going to take over the discipline of my own children now, and you're going to be ruined as a nation because you didn't do what I wanted. Verse 11, you shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble, your breath as fire shall devour you, and the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. The Assyrians are compared to extremely flammable chaff, stubble, and thorns. Their malice and arrogance was like fire coming from their mouths. We call people hotheads. They were fire breathers. Uh, They had dragon breath, you might say. Sure, it was the angel of the Lord who killed 185,000 of their soldiers. But prior to that, in the story, and we'll get to that, uh, they had sent an envoy who mocked God's people, who ridiculed God's people, and, and made them feel as though defeat was a given. Uh, if you like the Lord of the Rings, think of the mouthpiece of Sauron who comes out at the end and, and creates fear in the hearts of the fellowship of the ring, that kind of a thing. And so God says, well, since you speak arrogance, it's going to be like fire coming out of your mouth, but you're, no, you're nothing but chaff and seeds and thorns, and you will, in a sense, destroy yourself because you did not acknowledge his greatness. Verse 13, hear you who are far off what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Whether it's the past siege of Assyria or the future time of Jacob's trouble, the Lord will put down Israel's enemies. The fear of the Lord isn't just one thing with one definition. One thing it is, and that is the constant apprehension that he is dwelling in me and thereby always with me. And I've got to understand that as a blessing as the greatest gift, really, human beings have received in terms of a relationship with God by the Spirit. Fearfulness of the Lord is something for you to be appreciative of. We're going to encounter the word fearful. Uh, It's a prominent subject in the remaining verses. The word means to shudder or to tremble. It's only used four times in the Bible, including this one. Another is of Daniel in chapter 10, An angel comes and is speaking to Daniel about the end times, and he said, I stood trembling. More than a few Bible characters trembled in the presence of the Lord or one of his messenger angels. The Apostle John famously fell down seeking to worship the angel. Fearfulness is simultaneously seeing God's holiness and my sinfulness. Not only at that moment of salvation, but it ought to continue and deepen over the course of your Christian walk. Plenty of us have the, te- the uh, testimony coming to Christ later in life where you saw in a way that you didn't understand at the time, but there was a simultaneous understanding of your wickedness as a sinner and God's greatness as a savior. And, and you 
came to know the Lord and asked him to forgive you your sins and to repent of them and fill you with his Holy Spirit. But this should continue throughout your Christian walk to a certain extent as we become more and more aware of our weaknesses and our need for the Lord. The Apostle Paul's soliloquy in Romans 7 is the classic text. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do, but instead I do the evil that I don't want to do. Now, there are those commentators who say that was Paul before he was saved. And then he meets Jesus and the Spirit fills him and all. But um, Paul later will say, I am, not I was, I am the chief of sinners. Uh, and, and so this, this is... Uh, I understand why people teach it a different way because it comes across like, well, wait a minute, should I be groveling all the time in my sin? We're going to cover that in just a minute. The answer, of course, is no. Uh, But uh, fearfulness like this, it is necessary and it is good if you want to grow. It brings you to apprehend what Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Until we go to be with the Lord, by dying or by being raptured, we are in what Paul calls a body of death. And it may be, I don't have a time to flesh out this whole illustration, but there was a, a people back then who their punishment was uh, for murderers was to tie you to a dead body. And just, you'd just hang around with this rotting flesh on you until it started to rot your flesh. Uh, and um, not good. Uh, and so Paul says, yeah, that's, that's what our flesh, that's what our natural bodies are like without, uh, you know, the, the help of the Lord. We'll have glorified bodies in the future. And, and so, uh, you know, who's going to deliver me from that kind of thing? But sinful as you are, the Lord does not condemn you. He's given you his spirit so that you can conquer sin and conquer your flesh. That's a summary of Romans chapter 8. So verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? The Jews saw what the angel of the Lord did to the Assyrian army that God was saying, hey, I'm going to burn them up like chaff. And then they're thinking, well, we are worse than the Assyrians because we are God's people and we're sinners. They don't know anything about God, really. Uh, They're not born into the family of God. They're not Jews. They're not converts. But we are the people of God. And so if if God's going to judge them with fire, how will we escape that? Who among us? The Jews saw that the angel of the Lord did this. A.W. Tozer noted, as we said earlier, they saw the greatness of God and they also saw the goodness of God in verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, that's an Italian guy, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Now, this is really describing not a works, but a a person who has gotten back to a walk with the Lord. These are characteristics of what it's like to walk with the Lord. And so the the Jews are saying, who in the world, you know, is not going to be judged? They go, well, the person who repents and comes back to the Lord, which was the goal all along. God's not trying to destroy his people. He's trying to draw them back to himself. Now, if you look later, there are at least five, uh, excuse me, 
uh, in verse 15, there are at least five results of fearfulness. You can go through and number them off uh, and then meditate on each one of them. Ask the Lord, for example, have I shut my eyes from seeing evil? That's one of them. And that's going to be between you and the Lord. I could give you a list of different things for each of those things, but they, it would be my list and my way of seeing things. There are things, as, as far as our eyes looking on evil, there are things probably all of us would agree upon. We say, hey, what about this? Is this something we should be looking at or watching or seeing? And probably 99% of no, that's, you know, no, not as a Christian. But as we continue to bring forth stuff, you know, it would be, well, that's okay. Another, no, that's really not okay for me. And there, then you get into that liberty versus uh, legalism debate that happens, you know, whenever two Christians are gathered. Uh, and he goes, so you get with the Lord on your own. You say, Lord, what should I not be looking at? And remembering that we live in this body of flesh, this sinful body. We have a propensity to sin. Uh, if you come to Christ later in your life, that's a great thing. But there's a lot of junk that you bring with that. Uh, you, there, there, there's probably, I'm going to go way out of limb here and say, there is something that you shouldn't be looking at. I don't know what it is. I don't even know what it is for me until I go to the Lord. Uh, but take the time and do that Bible study as a devotion. Number the five things, pray about it. Do it Monday through Friday and take the weekend off. I know, I'm not really funny, so why laugh? Uh, it says in verse 16, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Another version of the Bible translates this. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the rocky fortresses. His food provided, his water assured. Now, again, this is a jump past Isaiah's time into the future, great tribulation. Many premillennial commentators think Isaiah was prophesying about the Jews in the Holy Land after the Antichrist reveals himself as wanting to be called God by defiling their rebuilt temple because Jesus in Matthew 24 says, when that happens, when that abomination happens in the temple, get out of Dodge, run for the hills, literally. Don't go back and get your go bag. Don't go up onto the rooftop. Woe to you who are pregnant because you're going to be slowed down. Go, 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 because the Antichrist is going to be used by the devil to come after you and destroy you. His whole plan now is to destroy every living Jew. And so he warns them. And so they see in this that God is sending them to the rock city of Petra in the Middle East, that impregnable fortress, and that they will be cared for there by the Lord for the final three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. You can read about it in the book of the Revelation. And so verse 17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. The Jewish people who survive the tribulation will see their king. They will see their land as it stretches far into the distance. For the first time, Israel will receive all of the land that was promised to the patriarchs. That's my weekly quote from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, by the way. Good guy. Verse 18, your heart will meditate on terror. Where's the scribe? Where's he who weighs? Where's he who counts the siege towers? The, uh, these would all be uh, offices or officers in the Assyrian government. Uh, the scribe would be a person who comes and maybe takes a census or uh, gets an inventory of, of your crops and those kinds of things. And then he who weighs would be the tax man uh, who would come and tax you exorbitantly. Uh, and he who counts the siege towers, this is a military reconnaissance. 
trying to find out what kind of defenses that they have and are building up. The terror of these enemies will be no more for Jerusalem, for Zion, for the Jew. That's what he's being told. That will all be done when the Lord returns. Uh, verse 19, you will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Earlier in uh, Isaiah, he had talked about, hey, when the Jews were taken captive by people whose language they couldn't understand, it was a symbol to them, a figure to them, of the fact that they had refused to understand God's clear language. God clearly, openly, without using any obfuscation, uh, was able, get it, huh? Anyway, uh, to just share with them the simple, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Just simple truths. And Isaiah was saying, oh, we don't understand. Was he talking to us like we're babies and baby talk? And so the Lord has them taken by Assyria, and they can't understand the Assyrians at all. And he, and he says, this, this is what happens when you refuse to understand me. Uh, and so he takes them through these things to bring them back to himself. Verse 20, look upon Zion, Jerusalem, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see it, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. The nation of Israel in the future millennium finally takes its rightful place as the chief among the nations of the world. Tenderly, lovingly, joyfully, the Jewish people will be home. What a great word in that verse, home. They're going to finally be home and see their home and be able to rest in a way that they haven't uh, from the beginning. Verse 21, but there is the majestic Lord. He will be for us a broad, uh, excuse me, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. Rivers enrich the life of great cities of the past like Nineveh and Babylon, but they also gave access to their enemies. Babylon, you'll remember, was conquered by the Medo-Persians when they dammed up the Euphrates River, diverted its course so that they could come into the city of Babylon under the wall and destroy uh, the army. Here we're learning that the, uh, the Jerusalem, the Jews under the Lord's rule will have all the glory of such cities like these rivers, but none of the vulnerability. It'll all be beauty and glory. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. The Jews rarely acknowledge God in any of these roles. The obvious example was king. Uh, again, I think Gino hit this last week. Just listen to his study and we could be done right now. But anyway, uh, they, uh, the, the Israelites said, hey, this is great that we're a nation and we're tribes and all that, but we want to have a king like all the other nations. And Samuel, who is the last judge and the first prophet, he, he said, hey, this is not a good idea. They said, no, we want to be like the other kings. When we go to king's seminars, we don't know what to say. So who's your king? Uh, Jehovah? Really? What, what does that mean? You know? and, and so they wanted an earthly king, and so they chose Saul, who was a tall, handsome guy. And, but he just didn't have a heart for the Lord. People always choose on the outward, not on the inward. Captain Kirk has got to be the top ten, maybe top five, maybe the number one human hero of all time, right? Because of things like this. He once said, we prefer to help ourselves. We make mistakes, but we're human. And maybe that's the word that best explains us. We like to celebrate this indomitable human spirit, do we not? How many movies can you think of where they just can't break the guy? 
He, you know, just, you can't do it. Again, Braveheart, which I didn't watch in prepar- preparation for this, but it came to my mind. Remember at the end, they are disemboweling him. And what does he go? What does he say? No, he says, freedom, freedom. The indomitable human spirit. Disembowel me, cut my head off, do whatever, torture me in any way you want, but humans will rise up against you. Terminator, we're going to win. You know, there's no way for us to beat these machines, but we're going to. There's this, this idea of the indomitable human spirit until God seems to let you down in some way, right? Why is there this suffering? Where's the promise of his coming? What's going on? You can't have it both ways. You can't say we're the indomitable human race. We're going to sin however we want to. We don't need God, but God, where are you when we need you? And so God says, yeah, I'm here where I've always been. I'm the one who sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place. You might think you're doing it your way. You might line up behind Frank Sinatra. I'm letting you do it your way to see how disastrous it is. Do you see the world we live in right now? One thing you need to realize, I think you guys do, this is not the world that the Lord created, is it? This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is the world we have made for ourselves, saying we have the indomitable human spirit, we can do it ourselves. In Romans, it says we don't keep God in our understanding anymore. We're ignorant of him willingly, and so let's go for it. Let's see what it means to be human. And what it means to be human in that sense is almost inhumane at this point in history in terms of what people are doing to each other. Uh, Human trafficking and the homeless problem and all of these different things. Uh, So, you know, where is God? Waiting. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, you and I could hasten his coming uh, by continuing to obey him and share the Lord with him. Not that we're holding, you know, it's not to burden anybody, But, you know, just be about the work of the ministry. So many Christians who ought to be about the work of the ministry are doing other things that are interfering with them being able to minister the gospel. Because ultimately, we all agree that it's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that changes society by changing men one at a time. The gospel, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man who was crucified for our sins, took our place gives us, if we ask for it, his righteousness and takes upon himself our sin, rose from the dead, proving himself and that all he said was true, going to come back for us, has a plan for the future. That's what's happening. We need to believe and we will be saved. And, uh, and we can hasten that coming to a certain degree. We celebrate until God gets in the way and then we blame him and that's not right. Verse 23, your tackle is loose. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. The prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. Assyria's defeat will be like a shipwreck after uh, which the many spoils on the ship will be divided among the Israelites. There'll be so much plunder that plenty will be left by even the time lame people are able to hobble out onto the battlefield, right? I mean, that's what it's saying. So they're out there getting, you know, all the riches and weapons and stuff, and whoever's lame is moving along, you know, not so quickly behind them, but there's, there's going to be plenty for them. The Hebrew for lame is lamo, uh, by the way, as in, you're a lamo. Do you ever call anybody a lamo in school? I, I'm, I don't mind being 68 years old. I mean, we did some great stuff back in my era. We could call people lamo and get away with it, right? Uh, how about... 
uh, spastic. Are you familiar with that word? Yeah, it's, it means, you know, it's what I do occasionally, where I spasm out up here. Well, of course, we used to call people spazzes. And so you were a lame spaz, right? And, uh, of course, I would never think of even bringing that up anymore. But anyway, the truth is, they were saying, hey, there's so much spoil that I've, I got all I can carry and a guy who's hobbling along with one leg, he's going to be able to get a bunch too. And so God says, man, when, I defeat, when God defeats people, it's, it's serious. Armageddon, when the Lord comes back at the end of the Great Tribulation, at the Battle of Armageddon, he said the blood is going to be in that valley up to the horse's bridles. And of course, commentators say, well, that's not possible. It is possible because the word says it's possible. It's going to happen. I mean, when the Lord destroys something, when he puts the devil down, when he defeats his enemies, they're, they're done. Now, Satan is a defeated foe. God is allowing him to still have some uh, impact on the world. But there's a point at which he's going to throw him into a lake burning with fire for all eternity. And sadly unbelievers as well, because there's no other place to be found for them. Verse 24, the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. One of our commentaries expanded like this. They said, the ministry of the king as a healer will be seen throughout the age, so that sickness and even death, except as a penal measure and dealing with overt sin, will be removed. Accompanying this ministry will be the healing of all deformity at the inception of the millennium. Philip Yancey wrote, the proof of spiritual maturity is not how pure you are, but how aware you are of your impurity. That awareness opens the door to grace. You're not going to think you need grace, God's unmerited favor, if you don't recognize how sinful you really are and how incapable you are of doing anything in your own strength. The awareness he's talking about is what we saw earlier in the Apostle Paul. He says, I am a wretched man, but I'm one who has no condemnation from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A danger of fearfulness is that you remain wretched. You've known people, maybe you are that person who always, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I can't do anything. Uh, and, and there are people who are spiritually crippled with fearfulness and wretchedness. You got to get out of Romans 7 and into chapter 8 at some point, right? And say, hey, I, here, here's how Martin Luther handled it, the great reformer. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? No. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Nanny, nanny was in the original, but they've dropped that. But no, but that's the idea. We should never think lightly of sin or sin so that grace will abound. But is the door open for grace in your life? First, you have to be fearful and realize that in your flesh there is nothing good dwelling, no good thing. Everything is a gift from God, but that gift is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit whom you can yield to, who can defeat sin uh, and keep you on God's path. Like David, whose son died, 
when the boy was sick, he prayed and fasted. When the boy died, he got up and went about ruling his kingdom. His servant said, what's the deal with that? Why aren't you sad now? It was because he understood that God was done disciplining him and that he would go on now and walk with God. Uh, and, and, you know, some people say, well, that, that doesn't seem fair. God is ultimately fair, but what he's showing us is his grace. And so you have to have the door open for grace, wide open. You ever see these, uh, these cop shows? They always say the same thing. Nobody lock their doors until after this murder. Make sure your door isn't locked to God's grace. Don't grovel. Get up. Serve the Lord.